0: Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyer Labs and today we get to talk to Arvind Gupta. And Arvind is the general partner of SOS Ventures and IndieBio. And- SOS Ventures is a VC firm that has invested in over 400 companies in spaces like biotech, software, and food tech. So we'll hear more about some of their portfolio companies. And IndieBio is the world's first startup accelerator for synthetic biology, which was started back in 2014. So Arvin has a great background as industrial designer, spending a lot of time at IDO, the well-known design firm. And so i had never talked to Arvin before this, but I've seen some of his videos, and I just talked to him briefly, and he brings some great energy to conversations. So I'm pretty excited to learn more about Arvin and what he's excited about, and what makes him uh, content. So Arvin, thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. All
0: right. Well, so thanks so much
1: for happy. Definitely.
0: Well, I appreciate your time. And so before we get into what you're doing now, can you just give us a little uh, background, so people can get to know you a little
1: bit. Yeah, um, so I have a, I have kind of a, a strange meandering uh, background of how I ended up doing what I'm doing today. Uh, I started out, um, sort of my my education, doing uh, genetic engineering in college, and as a genetic engineer, uh, as a college student, high school student, um, I I was. It was very clear that uh, the ability to manipulate life uh, and the code of life itself would be a pretty powerful um, uh, skill set to have in the future. And so I was um, super excited to dive into that. And um, as I was starting to embark on my genetic engineering degree, um, I found that the one thing that I didn't count on was how slow it was. Uh, it was really interesting and really exciting in, in what we were be able to do, but it was uh, just so slow. And I was surfing a bunch at the time, and used to be Santa Barbara, is where I did my degree. And like, uh, my lab is right on the point. If you know the biology lab, is like right on Campus Point, and you see the waves go by, and it's just like everything's forever. And I was, I finally, uh, I was just like, you know, I, this is. There is definitely something powerful here, but, but it takes too long. And, uh, at that time, I also started getting into other subjects, um, and economics was one of them, macroeconomics in particular. And, um, I thought that biology and macroeconomics were actually, uh, fairly related within systems level. And so I, uh, graduated, uh, university, uh, with a degree in genetic engineering economics and, uh, moved to San Francisco, um, to, Try out uh, how to make money with just ideas itself, and so I stood on the floor of the of the options exchange um, on the steps, uh, and everyone that came out, I asked for a job getting coffee, and uh, finally, one of the dudes was like, "Yeah, you can you can be my coffee getter," and so I got onto the floor and uh, got the you know got this guy his coffee and checked his trades in the morning at four a.m. And, uh, but I got on the floor and I was able to start asking questions and learn. And one of the firms that in there backed me as a market maker. And, uh, so I became a market maker of the Microsoft pit. this was like 99. Um, and it was a pretty amazing time. Um, because yeah, as, as we, as we now know, there's a huge spike and bubble and crash and, uh, the, P- the Pacific Coast exchange at the time had a, had a monopoly on, uh, tech stocks. So it was just it was pretty cool to hear and see the volume of trades, and I did that for a couple of years. But I found it to be super meaningless in the long run. Hmm. I found, you know, what I would tell people is, yeah, I create liquidity for a living. I take risk. I actually, what I actually told people is, I take risk for a living. I take other people's risk away from them. They they give it to me, and then I try to get rid of it myself. Um, And I get and I try to make money uh, in the process. And uh, it was really exciting to do that in the beginning, but once you figured out the algorithm, it became not only mind-numbingly boring, um, but it also didn't create any real value in the world that I could see. And I was young enough to see um, or to think that that mattered or naive enough to think that that mattered at the time because um, I was so young I it had no real need for, for the money. So I decided to run a quick experiment where I said, okay, well, if there's, if most people work to make money so they could buy their life back um, in their off hours, what if you just barely made your, your rent and all that kind of stuff, uh, but doing something you would have done had you uh, had nothing to do at all? Then theoretically, you're on vacation for the rest of your life, right? So I was like, oh, well, let's just try that, So because I had the means. And so I just kind of did nothing for almost two years. Um, I ended up surfing and base jumping and skydiving a ton and stuff like that and just kind of exploring myself and um, art for the first time and start painting, things like that. And so a friend of mine who I was teaching how to base jump, the Morris, he's like, uh, I made all, all this furniture in my apartment out of driftwood and stuff. He's like, yeah, oh, you should be a designer. I was like, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's like, you know, art and design together to solve problems. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Can you make money being that? He's like, yeah. I was like, all right, um, <laughs> and so I ended up going to do a master's program at, uh, at the State for for industrial design, and uh, from there I got hired at uh, IDEO uh, to join uh, the design team there, and uh, and so and basically, you know, started as, a, as an industrial designer designing products, and then kept asking the question, what else can design uh, accomplish? What else can design do? And started designing businesses. Uh, as the questions became more strategic, that idea be was being asked, and uh, finally did a startup with uh, my wife, and um, and learned to come there, and that you know created some amazing uh, amazing insights. And then was asked to join venture capital, um, and that's when I saw that biology in the ensuing 20 years almost now. Geez, um <laughs> In the ensuing 20 years, biology had caught up in speed, and uh, I thought, well, the world doesn't really need another hardware VC, but biology is ready for a change, and so um, I joined uh, SOFV to head the biotech um, charge,
0: and that's where I am today. That's nice. Okay, that's a, a great overview. And, uh, I got, I got, I got <laughs> it's a bit I, no, it's great. I've got tons of questions, but I won't ask them all. Otherwise we'll spend the whole time in your background. <laughs> and so, but, uh, yeah, so yeah. what, uh, well, I mean, I guess a couple you can have quick answers, you know, what, what prompted you to s- sure. sit on the sta- the steps and have the confidence to go up to people? Um, I mean, I've, I've never heard anybody hardly doing that. That was pretty good to get a job. At, yeah, uh, it wasn't
1: t- It was, yeah, it was it was the opposite of confidence, okay. right? I had nothing to lose. <laughs> I had just moved to San Francisco, right? Like, uh, didn't have a job, didn't really have prospect You know, like I was just kind of like, well, I was like trying to write neural networks at home uh, to predict the stock market, which were abject failures after overfitting the training data. And you know, I was like, oh, okay, well, I really wanted to just try the experiment of of figuring out how to how to earn a living through having ideas um, and that's that was really it is it to me going to the to going into finance or, or economics way back then was oh, okay if, you know I have an idea if interest rate do X and then what happens to prices at Y and then how does that affect a corporation and then the price and perception blah 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 so that was really cool to me and, and really just sitting on the steps was an easy the easiest way to get access to these guys hmm. It was, it was, you know, back then. It was how do you find them? Uh, you can't, and uh, the the exchange is locked. You can't get in there, and so I just
0: sat outside. I like it. I like it. So, and uh, you mentioned some other things. You seem fairly adventurous, and uh, is that because you're just curious, like how it's gonna feel the base jump, or you just like to live life to your fullest, or yeah, what prompted you to go base no, jumping not... and surfing, and
1: yeah, yeah, nothing like that. I, I mean it'll live life to the fourth. I'm not sure you know like I I never know what that means yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I I do know like so it's all yeah it's about experiences for me like in college I, I want to surf because I was in UC Santa Barbara and you know like how often are you going to live on the beach and, and uh, surf I actually definitely afraid of water <laughs>
0: really <laughs> uh,
1: I'm, yeah I'm a, I'm a terrible swimmer and, and I'm not really comfortable in the water and uh, I ended up uh, working my way up to, uh, you know, some some decent-sized waves uh, and then nearly drowned at tarantulas on a double-overhead day. <laughs> so that Wait, was you, said
0: ne- a, you said you nearly drowned?
1: Time. Yeah, I nearly drowned at, tra- at tarantulas, which is a big-wave spot up in San Luis Obispo. But uh, it, it wow. was, uh, but, you know, so, so I took it too far, right, and, uh, and uh, it was never, I was, I I shouldn't have been out there. It was uh, silly of me, and I'm I'm thankful that I, I got lucky. But um, but yeah. Then you know, so like base jumping came very easily. Like I, I started climbing because Santa Barbara has surf and climbing. Um, and and I really enjoyed the the again it's thinking right. Like the so climbing is a bunch of problems you're solving in in a row with your gas with the gas tank of your forearms, uh, and and your technique and and so that's a really cool thing for me. Uh, and so big wall climbing is even more so, which is what I ended up getting into. And so I was on the side of El Cap, uh, you know, when I was, uh, 22, no, 2019, 20, I can't remember, uh, in college, 97, whatever that was. And, uh, two guys, you know, we're waking up in the morning and I, we hear this rock ball, me and my partner were on, were on, uh, El Cap Towers and we you know, And we're scrambling, paced up to the side of the cliff, and two guys fly by. And I was like, no way. You could jump off this fucking thing and see what it's like (laughs) to live. I was like, I'm going to do that one day. And so it took me, you know, it took me a few years before I was able to make the money to learn to skydive and do all the things. But but yeah, then uh, eventually learned the base jump. So, Uh, (laughs) you know, I I went to skydive to learn base jump.
0: So so, were you yeah. uh, on the side of the? Um, I'm gonna say mountain the the wall when they base jumped. Were you? Uh,
1: yeah, totally. Yeah, so so at, I was on El Cap Towers, which is a like, um, which is a oh, large yeah. halfway up yeah, the nose. Route. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and so uh, yeah, and they you know they totally flew by in the strangest, most circular story ever. Hard thing to believe this. The two guys that flew by me were uh, Pete Wiley. I um, uh, Can't remember the other guy. But Pete Wiley was the first guy I met at the drop zone. I ended up going to three or four years later oh, no to learn how to base jump. Yeah, it was Lodi. So Lodi is the standard. You know, that's like the base jumper drop zone. And and I I show up and I'm like, I want to learn how to stu- I want to learn how to base jump. And they're like, Shh, you don't talk about that here. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. And uh, and he I I was telling the story of when I jumped and I remembered it because it was my um, my birthday. And uh, and they were like, no way. And they looked up the logbook, and it was them. <laughs> But, funny
0: so, so after almost drowning did that uh, change your perspective on life at all or did it uh you already had no yeah,
1: no, no, no. no i mean i, I think I, not not that i'm aware of i should say okay. I, I think because like for instance there's so many like mini you know if you're a rock clim- a climber that pushes the limit uh you know i did a lot of free soloing and climbing it's actually why i kind of got out of climbing was i was just so scared all the time i started really pushing the mile limit on a free solo level, um, and, you know, big long run, sk- uh, run out scary routes. That, uh, you know, I, for me, it was always about mind control. Like, can my mind stay together when it has to? And it was, a, I think that was the, what I enjoyed the most. Um, some of it, the movement, some of it, the, you know, but, but really what I enjoyed were, uh, the mind control hmm. aspect um, of it all, and for me, it was very spiritual. Uh, so, anyway, that that's the thread that that really puts like progressing in the big waves and uh, and you know hard hard skating climbs and uh, and base jumping and what I do now, uh, mixed martial arts, so, which is much much safer uh, okay. than anything else that okay. I've
0: done. So that's how you practice the mind control now is through mixed martial arts. Yeah. Okay. What, what do you do? That's
1: exactly it. Uh, so uh, I train over at El Nino with Gilbert Melendez and uh, and uh, Jake Shields and a bunch of other guys. And I'm mostly a ground fighter, but, you know, strike with. Uh, I do Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu, wrestling, American wrestling. Wow. Uh, those are my three mage. Yeah. So I'm a purple belt under uh, under um, Cesar Gracie and, uh, and Jake Shields. Um, and won world championships uh in uh, 2016 last year um for the uh from from my division
0: wait you won the world championship
1: yeah yeah so i missed that yeah, done so, um, um,
0: holy cow <laughs>
1: <laughs> how did i miss that uh, oh, i don't think i don't God. think said it i don't think i said, it. Okay. I think I said it. um yeah Well, i mean it's wow. it's a, it's a fun note. aside i i, like, <laughs> I competing so oh
0: that's um,
1: crazy um yeah again it's just it's just it is just mind control. Like, I think I've learned more about business from fighting than anything else. I, from any book, from any like, fighting is an incredible metaphor for doing business. Um, I can I can go on and on about it, but
0: well, yeah. yeah, yeah, you can expand. I'd, I'd I'd be curious why or how that is.
1: Well, there's, there's just there's just so many ways. I mean, there's a they're very analogous, right? You're in a, a business of a fight for market share it's you know it's a to fight for for attention there's a but also from a founder point of view there's also a lot of um management that has to happen energy management uh management of other people's plans that you don't have control of uh your reactions and things like that like so one of my favorite ideas out of this is and it took me many years of, of training to, to get this. like in a you know hard fight with someone better than you uh, in the beginning, you think speed wins everything, right? Speed wins battles. Uh, what I realized is speed wins battles, but patience wins the war. And so mm-hmm. for, for business building, it's, we always talk about speed, 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 speed. speed. Um, and for good reason, because speed is really important to win all the battles. But, but the, re- the, the actual war becoming eventually the, the number one in your industry uh, and, and really disrupting things, that, that's the war that requires a lot of patience, uh, that that's going to require energy management. It's going to require, uh, choosing what you're going to go after, what you're not going to go after, uh, making those decisions. That's, and that's a patience game, uh, much more so than it is a, uh, a sort of speed game. So it's like speed at the right moments with, with, and, and knowing when the right moments are. So, yeah, I think there, there's just been a, a lot of. It's really helped me a lot in understanding business.
0: Gotcha. So like when you're fighting, you're, yeah, you're you're waiting, waiting, waiting for the time when you can kind of attack. And if you attack too early, attack too soon, similar
1: to yeah, or or, or even better when when you're on the defense, right? When you're when you're getting you're getting your your butt kicked <laughs> yeah. and uh, and really like you don't see an out. And you're like, oh man, like I, I, this guy is better than me, and how you know how am I gonna do this? Um, you know, and you're not going to just give up because you're not. You're, if you're that type of person, you're not going to be doing the sport. Uh, so you're, so you've got to think, right? Like, and and over time, you start to realize that, like, oh, okay, it's not. There's no need to panic until there's, until it's really curtains And uh, and having patience to mm. to ride the storms out, uh, and not panic, and not quit, not do mm. dumb things which is usually what leads to the quick finish, right? Um, learning to ride that out is probably the biggest lesson I've learned. And, uh, and you actually can see it now when you employ it on other people. When you're putting it on someone else, you're just, you know they're gonna panic and give you something easy, right? So it's the same thing when you have market share and dominance, you could, you could put it on people and uh, cause panic um, and vice versa when you're the underdog and trying to make your way up to the top. Uh, Riding out the storm is going to be important
0: to learn. No, I like that. And so, how would that translate? Let's see to business. Exactly. So, I, I definitely get your your point about uh, you know you're getting attacked and you know you just have to you know wait <laughs> it out. But so, like in business. Yeah, say, it's like, like
1: competitive, right? But yeah, but, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well,
0: well, I wasn't saying business. You know, let's say you know you have ups and downs, right? And so it's a it's a Wednesday afternoon, and you're like holy cow, things are just not working out, but. You know, and with fighting, you have you know minutes. whereas business? You know, you have like hours, days, weeks where things might not be working out. So, uh, how do you like find yeah. the patience? How do you relax? Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. you got to find those things, and and I think, um, yeah, it's a really you got it. You got to figure out how to breathe through them, right? So, like you know, it's just a it's a different level of of relaxation. So the way. The way I relax is uh, you know, to make sure that I'm functioning at, the, at optimal performance at all times is I try to balance my life as much as possible through kind of spiritual, physical and, and intellectual pursuits. Um, and I find that if, if any one of those takes over or if I'm underbalanced, uh, in any way, um, it becomes harder to, to be patient and it's harder to, to deal with those things. So because you lose perspective. Um, and I think perspective is going to be really important so translating it you know directly to business it's it's, a, it's just one of those things you have to figure out for yourself I, I think uh, for many founders what is that for them uh, I've worked with you know over I've made 67 direct investments in, in companies so far uh, and I've worked with directly with every team and um, and every founder has different sort of approaches but they all have in common that they're going to have struggles and and they do have to figure out ways to do it like Morteza from Kidney amazing amazing founder he's uh, developing a world-first artificial implantable uh, kidney uh, and uh, he's taking a very different approach where he's basically built a tiny tiny dialysis machine that can fit inside of your body yes. and then get hooked up to your bladder so the uh uh, the guy out, uh, uh, distillate basically goes into your bladder and you can actually uh, just pee it out. So, very innovative approach. And I remember one week during, when we were working together uh, during the batch, he was like, This is a dark leak for kidney. I'm like, Why? And he's like, Uh, one of the prototypes broke. There's an attack on his patent. Someone was threatening him that there's an infringement. Basically, it looked like his company could be over by the end of the week huh. and he kind of was just smiling and he's like this is a bad week for kidney you know <laughs> and i was like i'm like dude you're incredibly calm for someone who, who got their entire company on the line and a very promising company at that um and then of course he got through it and uh everything ended up being fine the patent wasn't being infringed upon, and uh and uh you know the prototype was fixed of course and all that kind of stuff and so it's just a matter of keeping calm. Other people can panic and and, uh, and and not focus on the right things and set off a IP lawsuit or you know something stupid that costs money and time and ends up you know crushing your burn. So there's a there's all these like very tangible sort of uh, decision points that you're always making that like maybe people aren't aware of. Uh, yeah, and- but how you're responding. Yeah, how you're responding is important to, to keep yeah. in mind.
0: And and talking to others like you who can understand and <laughs> be a good sounding board and
1: yeah exactly getting getting outside perspective is really key. Then the startup world is such a insular echo chamber. I think one of the hardest things about being a startup founder is the loneliness of of being a startup founder. You know, like very few people understand what you're going through. Very few people, uh, you know, think. Uh, it's as cool as you do, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's uh, it's hard. I think I think being a startup founder is one of the hardest things in the world to do, uh, and so it requires a real dedication uh, far beyond um, uh, far beyond sort of monetary uh, reasons. Uh, because it's way too painful. It's way too painful.
0: Well, that's yeah, that's. Yeah, it's nice having somebody like you on on the entrepreneur's side, you know, to describe it like that, because, you know, there's good and bad days, so they can always call up you when they're having a bad day, (laughs) and you you understand.
1: Well, yeah. Well, I'm an operator, you know, so, uh, you know, I've lived it, I've done it, I understand what it's like to be up super late and be stressing and, uh, you know, build a business and know it inside out, but not know why it's, it's painful to translate into a pitch deck, like, Pitch decks are so hard <laughs> uh, <laughs> because you know so much about it. It's hard to explain in a clear way. It's the weirdest but paradox, but it's true. I see so many terrible pitch decks from really smart, capable CEOs. Hmm. It's phenomenal. Interesting. All right. But it's because that, you know, you're know you too close to it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And so we'll talk more about indie Bio and VC here in a second. Before we leave this topic. I was sure. curious how – you know, you mentioned, I think it was the three pillars. It was the spirituality, the physical, intellectual. I think those were the three that you mentioned that yep. you know, are important. Yep. So yep. I was curious how, because, you know, I think we all know this, that we're supposed to spend time in all those areas. Um, but how do you actually make it happen? Um, like, do you schedule time? I mean, you do your your fighting, which would be probably a lot of the physical. But what about the intellectual yep. and spiritual? I guess intellectual maybe just talking to your portfolio companies, but... Um. How do you make time yeah, for? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That that's exactly right. And my family is my spiritual outlet. Okay, you know. Like, okay. it, it really is. And and I I I I, it, like it is that way. And in, in the same way that climbing walls or big you know, big wave surfing was for me is that because I'm not blazing two little girls. You know, and I want them to be strong, independent, uh, creative, curious people, and stuff. So like I see everything as a as a, as a, sort of a struggle, uh, but the struggle is what kind of results in happiness is, is those little moments of, of overcoming tiny, tiny little hurdles. And each time there's a little blip of happiness is really cool. Um, and that makes the journey super fun. So, um, you know, how do you make time? You just have to, you have to remember and make inviolate certain things. So I have on my schedule jujitsu, um, and, uh, and MMA, and very few things could ever come in front of it. Hmm. You have to prioritize, right? So like I have, I leave the office at five thirty on most days at the very latest, um, you know, 90% of days, uh, and that's inviolate. You know, uh, I might pick work back up and I often do at 10 PM yeah. or 11 PM with the room, you know, like, but, but there, that chunk of time is inviolate. And so it's, a uh, Again, it's that simple. And then, you know, for the mental aspect, I'm seeking out challenging issues at work. Uh, for that reason, like, you know, staying at um, I had I had mastered a lot of things, or I, I understood my job at IDF quite well uh, when I left. Uh, and so, why did I leave that? I mean, that was a very it was counterintuitive to leave a job that you become so senior in. Uh, and, and you have you establish so much uh, credibility and all of those things to start over. Why? Because the mental challenge wasn't quite there anymore, and I needed to learn something new. Um, and so that keeping that mental part predicated a career change for me. Oh, I don't really call it a career change. It was actually just a business model change, but um, <laughs> but but a big shift. It's yeah, at least yeah. and a lot more a lot of new stuff to learn. So anyway,
0: that's how I do it. Okay. All right. That's helpful. That's helpful. And all right. So we got like 15 minutes left. So we should probably talk um, a little bit about the, your indie bio and VC world. And I, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious.
1: I don't know if it's all useless to you,
0: but this is great. I mean, I could stuff we're talking about now. I could talk about the whole time, but the podcast is business innovation too. So we should probably touch on that too. But um, yeah, (laughs) but uh, so how, you know, this is all kind of one question you, or it's like three questions, but you can kind of answer all at one time. It's like, you know, why did you change to VC? And then can you tell us about Indie bio, like just a brief description and then, uh, um, you know, some of the, give, give us some examples of like, uh, problems that the Indie bio portfolio companies are tackling. You already mentioned one with the, um, the kidney, artificial kidney, which is pretty amazing. But, uh, yeah. yeah
1: the 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 genesis of of me going to venture capital is really starting a company with my wife called starters uh which was a fitness app so uh we're both the people and we see in our families actually it was kind of for our families our parents that weren't as fit and they just didn't know how to fit fitness into their life and so Chrisa, uh, my wife had the idea that we could just build a very simple uh video based uh app that had a little social network attached to it that would ping a little circle of family members that they did their little uh, workout just to start and that it would be so, like a little micro engagement and so she built that she's a CEO and I supported her uh, and it was a pretty amazing thing I designed for 12 years at idea and you know, like a lot of things that people use every day I've been involved with, you know, uh, like, what? but Uh, so, you know, the Samsung galaxy curve. Oh yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. So, so that was something that I, uh, huh. I did a little while ago. I did a bunch of things for Samsung, uh, a bunch of things for like, um, uh, MP3 players and a bunch of strategy stuff that ended up being services that, that we all use, uh, the Western digital, my book I was, uh, involved with. So, um, yeah. A lot of a lot of stuff that people use, and uh, but here we are. Starters build that in in a couple months, and then uh, launch it on the app store. And within a few months, there's you know seven thousand users in ninety two different countries. And uh, Chris gets an email, a couple a few emails, and people are like, "You you know this app changed my life." Uh, we didn't think we'd be able to to live a, a healthier wow. life. And I was like man I've been designing for you know 12 years and no one's ever sent me an email right <laughs> uh, yeah. and here we are you know here we are with an idea that we had in uh, you know we were in China when we had the idea and you know on the walls Xian uh, and three four months later it's, it's in reality and people are using it that was very seductive um, again coming back to the site that I love having ideas and, and creating change with that, creating value with that. And so that experience uh, sort of introduced me to venture capital, and I was doing a lot of work for venture capitalists at the time, sort of doing due diligence on uh, product-focused companies, consumer-focused companies. So uh, I ended up talking to SSB and uh, and other VCs, that, you know, we were saying, oh, you should be on the VC side, but what I found was biology was ready for uh, a moment because the cost of doing biology basically is dropping faster than Moore's Law um, currently. And so, but the funding and the business models had, had, not, had not changed. And so what I thought was there was probably an opportunity to help scientists build companies that an earlier stage had never seen, but be able to de-risk them quite a bit relative to what people thought. And, uh, so I built IndieBio on that premise. And to, uh, really make it work, uh, I built a lab for cheap, uh, a world class lab, but, you know, buying blown up, uh, blown up, uh, biotech startups selling brand new equipment, you know, because they didn't manage their, their expensive, uh, for pennies on the dollar. And so we have a multi million dollar lab that, that didn't cost that much. And, uh, and we, are now converting all the startups that we that we fund uh capex into operating expenditure right so basically you can now de-risk your company wow. uh using salary and using uh you know sort of the, the tr- more like a tech startup uh and tech economics but following a the scale and the magnitude of biotech uh impact so uh, that, that's what Indie Bios uh, was founded under, and so we've had some some good success so far in in this model. Well,
0: it's such a yeah. I mean, you must have some, a lot of fun days. I mean, if you just go through your portfolio, come, it's just it's just like a sci-fi dream. But I mean, you're doing like really important yeah. like any uh, so many of those. If they work, it just can change people's lives. Yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, not all of them, but yeah, it's.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think the most important thing is like well. By definition, like a lot of the companies we choose, have to change people's lives, or we won't fund them. Uh, because biology and life sciences are such that the 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 literal code that makes us who we are and the stuff around us what it is, um, that's the most techn- powerful technology on the planet. Uh, so if you you know if you look around in the room that you're sitting in right now, most of that stuff is made. You know, a lot of that stuff is made from life, right? Wood, uh, building materials uh, you know, what we think about, uh how we're sharing ideas. It it's it's all it's all coming from from people. Uh it's all coming from animals and from from plants and fungi and things like that. So uh by rewiring this stuff, we can actually uh create massive efficiencies where we've never seen them before. Uh so I like to call them intractable problems, uh basically problems that don't seem to that seem to be out of paradox or unsolvable. Uh like Clara Foods is one of them. Uh, Claire Foods was uh, one of our first cellular agriculture companies. Mm-hmm. They uh, are making chicken egg whites without the chicken mm-hmm. by taking the DNA that codes for chicken egg proteins and putting them into uh, yeast and then brewing the egg whites as we brew beer. Wow. And that, that, you don't have to raise a chicken, you know, feed it, have it lay eggs, and then crack the egg and throw away the yolk, right? Uh, because world demand for egg whites far exceeds egg yolks, uh, and and so you end up with this incredible waste and cruelty and mor- moral issues around the yeah. animals. So how, so how, that, oh,
0: yeah, go, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to say, you know, how far away is? It's not as these companies take a while to uh, nurture and then get out into the commercial world, like like yeah. that one versus the, so, kid- the kidney one. I'm sure is a long path, but like, you know, with the egg white one. What's what's kind of like the time frame? Do you know?
1: So the time frame for, for Clara Foods would be rather sh- short, okay. uh, you know, two, three years. I mean,
0: wow.
1: I've had the egg whites already. Uh, cre- producing the egg white isn't the hard part. It's producing it at a scale yeah. that would that would produce tons of it uh, to customers around the world. That's the hard part. And so, you know, like, I think all of these things are, are really important. Like Memphis Meats is one of our investments. Uh, we were the first. Check into them, and they're making—they're the world's leader in uh, making uh, clean meat. And clean meat being meat that has been produced in a lab, huh. uh, a muscle grown literally in a uh, in a in a silo of that of uh, nutrients, and you could grow just the muscle that you want to cook, rather than have an animal be born or slaughtered. Uh, and not only does it solve a lot of moral issues. But more importantly, for me as a venture capitalist, uh, it solves a lot of efficiency issues, and it solves a lot of uh, a lot of health issues uh, around transportation of of rotting meat, things like that. So, uh, and pathogens that occur within animals, and antibiotic resistance, and all of these things. So, it's a uh, these technologies uh, are are you're just starting to see how life can be redesigned. And, the reason we are is because these could be too expensive to do anything other than a drug. Uh, only drugs produce the the risk reward ratio that like pharma needs. So if it costs you ten million dollars to be a first check into an idea, like scientist says, I have an idea, I wanna do this, right? And I need ten million dollars to even start. Well, you know, V C Math will say that you need to have at least a five billion dollar exit uh, to to make that worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that can really do that is, okay, well, we know pharma, uh, you know, therapeutics produces this kind of revenue in part because of that. Uh, once you lower the cost of life sciences and biology, all of a sudden you end up in a, in a pretty amazing place. You have a Cambrian explosion of new life science verticals like cellular agriculture because you could take new risks that you couldn't take before since your cost basis is so much lower. So that was one of the things that I was most excited about trying within the bio is will new verticals open up. And uh, and I'm very, very glad to see that they did.
0: Yeah. It's a definitely exciting exciting time and a nice investment thesis that, I mean, and that was, you know, three years ago when you were looking at this. So now I think people understand it, but three years ago, I don't know if that was quite as uh.
1: Yeah. Accepting. Yeah. I mean, when we, first, when we were first funding these guys, we, our big question is, will, will people eat it? You know, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, sim- the science is fairly simple and straightforward uh, but the real question is would people eat it would the public even take it up and, and you know I'd eat it. the answer is pretty amazing <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Uh, you know polls are shut like I, this isn't a scary thing I, I've been very surprised by the response to be honest uh, that was the biggest risk to me
0: well I think even the younger generation and I know we're running out of time here but uh, we're going to have to p- have you come on for another show but my uh 12 year old niece she was just talking at dinner uh, about how you know she, she i think she was doing like a presentation on this essentially for like you yeah know, animals and like how she's excited for this the 3d what she called 3d printing of food but but uh yeah yeah so that's
1: what i, I yeah. love that yeah. she,
0: she's great i <laughs> <laughs> gotta use that <laughs> i'll 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 ask for that presentation and send it over to you. <laughs> <Exactly. That's> amazing. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah, it's in, in a little mass in here. Um all right, so I think we have us a little bit. I um I've got many more questions. But I was curious, you know, you from a VC standpoint, you're focused on synthetic biology, but you still have a pretty diverse set of companies. Like how you know, across different industries, how do you analyze the well the technical and team risk? Of course there's always the team risk, but the technical do you bring outside experts, and how do you understand the?
1: Yeah, the we have a we have a really deep mentor network. Uh, so, you know, first our team includes two PhDs. Uh, you know, one from Harvard, one from Scripps, and so they're they're pretty broad technically. But we also have like just a very strong scientific network, and so if something comes in, say with antibody drug conjugates or something like that, we can go talk to the head of biologics at uh, large pharma and say hey what do you think of this or you know if a computational platform comes in we can talk to you know another mentor uh, that's a leader in, in bioinformatics and that kind of stuff so we leverage our network heavily and for the mentors it's great because they are seeing the very cutting edge of what people are, try- are thinking about so it's, uh, it's great for them as well to, to just keep an eye on where the industry might be headed um, so that's very helpful but we, we really have like four due diligence questions that we that we ask kind of everyone which is uh, like the first one is is there a technical insight um, that solves a, a deep and vast problem and so we uh, you know, that vast problem needs to be a billion people uh, I think that's really important for for what we've seen uh, but but most importantly and I think this is what we added after batch one. Uh, the team has to be, has to have PhD-level uh, expertise. Biology is something you cannot wing. It is not something you can learn on the fly. It is not, you know, uh, there's no you know, code base that you can just, you know, put stuff together. Uh, to have a deep insight, you have to have deep education um, in, in, in science-based companies. And then the second one is, can that insight become a product that would meaningfully change someone's life? So. If, if that product can, then, then we ask, uh, could it become a business that would efficiently generate revenue? So I think that's a big, big question. Uh, is like, there's a lot of great products, but there's no way to extract value from it. I mean, it's going to be very hard to extract value from it. Uh, because maybe the pain isn't big enough or, or something like that. So you got to be able to generate the revenue. And then finally, the last question is, well, even if you can make it a business, this business become scaled to, to produce uh, a billion-dollar outcome or change the life of, like I said earlier, a billion people? That, that's kind of getting the scale. And then do it within seven years, which is the life cycle mm-hmm. of the fund, you know, to, to seven to ten years. So uh, if you answer yes to all of those questions, then we, then we move on to doing an interview with the team. And then we have two or three interviews. We have a very deep due diligence process, partially because we're uh, – we have a quarter million dollars that we give to the teams. And uh and we just we we have seen over and over again that in the end the team is what matters. The dedication of the founders, uh, to solving the problem that they have. Uh and that's that's what we really just kind of look for after after we've passed technical due diligence.
0: Gotcha, okay. Interesting. Well, and that's a, I think that's a, a great way to End the podcast. I think we're about out of time, unfortunately, but uh, Arvin, definitely appreciate your time. And this is awesome. This is great meeting you and uh, learning more, cool. more about your past and what you're up to now. And uh, definitely appreciate it.
1: Well, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on to your podcast and wish you luck in this. And uh, if there's anyone else you want to meet, or like, you know, uh, there's a bunch of interesting dudes and uh, in gals I know that would be happy to chat with you about their perspectives. Uh, and some of these companies that are trying to change uh the way things are done i think would be really interesting uh to chat with as well so i'll be happy to introduce you anytime yes
0: yeah yeah that was i had two things for you that was one of them so i'd be i'd definitely be curious i (laughs) I can send you a a follow-up email
1: yeah let's just do a follow-up email uh super helpful but yeah i really enjoyed it and uh thanks again for for the invite uh i'm really honored to be part of uh flyover labs
0: definitely and uh um and thanks everyone for listening to another episode as always i greatly appreciate it thanks